Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. Being tactically contrarian, we're able to identify opportunities that I would describe as not commoditized real estate, where we think we can generate outsized returns. In this market, finding strong real estate opportunities means you have to think differently. When large swaths of institutional capital are running from a particular market simply because of headline risk, does that risk make sense? Or if we look a few layers deeper, is there an opportunity there? Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Sometimes acquisitions that seem risky are actually just smart, seeing opportunity where others don't. And in real estate, if you have the experience and a strong handle on research, undervalued assets are there for the taking. My guest this week is Niffin Chexall. Niffin is the CEO of Palladius Capital Management, where he oversees all aspects of the firm, including leading a team of investment and asset management professionals focused on real estate, equity, and debt investments across the U.S., Previously, he was a partner and managing director at Nimes Real Estate, and before that, he was VP of Corporate and Business Development at Council. Niffin got his bachelor's degree at UCLA and has an MBA from the University of Chicago. Niffin and I talked about how Palladius's strategic approach to acquisitions has helped establish the company. We also talked about how real estate trends will drive their business over the next few years. Let's enter the arena with Niffin Chexall. Palladius is a real estate investment manager focused on investing in multifamily, student housing, hospitality, and from time to time, uh, focused thematic investment strategies that we have a high conviction around. We invest both equity as well as debt, uh, and we started the firm in early 2021 with the idea of designing a real estate investment manager that could scale rapidly as well as build infrastructure behind it that would allow us to not get ahead of our skis. That is, we could capitalize the acquisition of lots of assets, but have infrastructure and the right team around it to be able to manage that scale intelligently as we were growing the investment portfolio. You know, a little bit more than a year old, you've made a ton of progress growing the portfolio. What do you think has made you guys so successful so quickly? Well, we're, we're fortunate to have really smart capital partners in our orbit. And when we started Palladius, we sat down with those stakeholders, many of whom are a private as well as public company CEOs to think about what would be the best way to design an investment manager and how would it be different from traditional investment managers. So one of the first things we did was 
recognize that in order for us to build an investment manager that could scale rapidly, we needed to have operating capital to hire a best-in-class team, fund overhead and expenses that were traditional for an investment manager, such that when we made investment decisions, those investment decisions were ones that had true alignment with the investment partners. That is, we weren't focused on just generating fee income for the sake of generating fee income, but really identifying and acquiring assets that we had a high conviction around because of the actual real estate itself. And the operating capital that we raised for the investment manager gave us the ability to be patient and thoughtful about acquiring the right real estate at the right time at the right price. And so we raised capital in a series A round and we're able to hire a best in class team and we're able to fund a lot of our initial startup costs. We then tied that series A round to a subscription line and that subscription line was designed in a way where we could acquire real estate quickly warehouse it in our investment funds and then raise capital behind it to subsequently pay down that line. Just to, to contrast how, how you did this, how would a traditional firm kind of get off the ground and how would you contrast those two things? How does it make decision-making better? Yeah. So a lot of emerging managers need to raise capital for investments alongside the acquisition and they're not able to hire a high quality team up front that can be thoughtful about investment decisions, intelligent about asset management. The probability of success under that model for an emerging manager is low. We tried to avoid that by raising capital up front and because we had historically a good track record, a number of our investment partners were willing to take on some venture-like risk on the front end of Palladius in exchange for a percentage of the company on the investment thesis that we could continue to be successful with our investment strategies. And then again, they were willing to also step up and, and tie that investment to the subscription line that was set up for Palladius to be able to acquire assets. And that model has been successful in the last year we've been able to acquire in our first real estate investment vehicle just under 400 million in assets and we launched a debt fund as well uh, and we've started to originate debt from that investment vehicle um, and we're preparing to launch a second equity real estate fund as well focused on multifamily and student housing palladius kind of markets itself as tactically contrarian. Can you tell us what that means and why that creates a, a competitive advantage for you all? We're constantly trying to be ahead of the curve with respect to where we invest capital, how we operate assets, and how we think about decision-making with respect to the timing of the entry and exit of those assets. And that investment strategy of being tactically contrarian has served us well um, over the years. I'll, I'll give you a couple of quick examples. We were actively investing in Austin in the early 2010s, and we recognized 
two important things happening in Austin specifically. One, that there was a sizable but stealth technology footprint here that was rapidly growing, right? Dell is here, uh, Apple's second largest campus um, is here in Austin. There are a number of other tech companies that were um, going back and forth between the Bay Area in part because Austin looks and feels a lot like the Bay Area and because the uh, cost of living here is significantly lower than the Bay Area, it made it an attractive place for younger technology employees to want to relocate to. Um, so we, we knew that that uh, was happening in Austin and having grown up in the Bay Area and having seen real estate run as a result of the growth in technology jobs, um, which tend to have outsized wages relative to the national average, we thought that that made Austin a really interesting place. The other thing that we knew that was happening here was that the city council had wanted to build population density and become a 24-hour city. And so they were permitting verticality in downtown. Um, and a lot of the single and two-story buildings were going up 20, 30, 40, 50 stories as a result of that. And so those two trends in the aggregate we thought were really interesting and made Austin one of the best places to be investing in the country. Um, when we would talk to institutional capital about investing in Austin at that time, they would look at me and say, are you investing in Austin or are you investing in Boston? Well, how would you want to be in Austin? It was hard to break through that wall. Today, it's obviously, you know, looking back, everybody will say, well, I, I definitely want to be in Austin. How do I get in? Well, the prices have, have run significantly. And so it's much more challenging to identify the right investment opportunities that produce really attractive risk-adjusted returns. But at that time, it was interesting. We would describe that investment style as being tactically contrarian. Another example would be investing in Houston in 2015 when oil was crashing. We bid on a portfolio that Angela Gordon and Bridge were selling. We were able to step in and acquire it. We picked it up at a really nice discount, a $9 million discount relative to where it was originally in contract. And one of the things we saw about Houston was, yes, the price of oil was falling. Yes, Houston's economy is, is correlated to uh, oil, gas, and energy prices. But by the same token, the city of Houston had meaningfully diversified away from OG&E since the 80s. Um, and although there was some correlation, it was still the fourth largest city in the country, still tremendous demand for value-add housing, especially in transit-oriented locations, which is what this project was. And we were able to pick up 1,100 units at a really nice price. We completed a value-add over three and a half years. And when oil recovered, a lot of institutional capital that was running from the market because they just viewed oil, Houston, and as one unit, and when oil falls, Houston is bad. When oil recovered, a lot of the institutional capital rushed back in, and we sold that portfolio to Alliance Bernstein three and a half years later. So again, an example of trying to be thoughtful and peeling back layers to really understand when large swaths of institutional capital are running from a particular market simply because of headline risk, does that risk make sense? Or if we look a few layers deeper, is there an opportunity there because there's capital that's run, even though capital has been there historically and has been very robust? I'll use one final example, which is Chicago today, where we bought a deal in Oak Park earlier this year at a really nice basis. It was an 86 vintage, 16-story building. We were able to 
acquire it at a nice basis uh, and the competition to acquire it was low and that was in part because there continues to be a lot of headline noise around um, crime in Chicago as well as uh, property taxes. And Chicago is not without its problems for sure, but we think that the risk is a bit overblown. Number two, property taxes, which are a very valid concern, were one of the reasons that a lot of institutional capital ran from the market. And the initial assessments for the triennials in 2020 and 2021 were certainly high, but when you look at some of the post-appeal settlement levels, they were actually fairly normalized. So we looked at that and said, okay, we think some of the headline noise is overblown um, and there's still quite a bit of demand for value-added multifamily. And so we were able to buy this deal at a nice basis at the end of March. By the end of October, we'll have renovated about 50% of the project, uh, nice 234-unit deal sitting on an L-stop close to downtown. And um, we think that when some of that headline noise uh, diminishes, that capital will rush back into that market and we'll be able to exit um, this asset successfully. And, you know, I, I will point to the fact that uh, the Sun Belt during COVID had a tremendous run as far as rents go, but Chicago, New York, some Los Angeles, some of those gateway markets didn't see rent levels really move because people were leaving those markets. But as the world has turned back on coming out of COVID and things are reurbanizing, markets like New York and Chicago are seeing rents really run pretty hard. Um, and again, we think that ties back to our investment thesis that a lot of capital that was there historically may have moved out, but we think will eventually come back. So again, being tactically contrarian, we're able to identify opportunities that I would describe as not commoditized real estate, where we think we can generate outsized returns by being selective about positioning our investments in a way where we're a little bit ahead of the curve relative to the rush of institutional capital from some of our peers. Industrial real estate is a broad space. There's a wide variety of buildings, manufacturing, warehousing, and shipping, but Palladius is focused on shallow bay industrial assets or industrial warehouses. We're very focused on what we call multi-tenant shallow bay product, which is buildings that have multiple tenants so that your exposure is not a single credit, but you've got multiple tenants with smaller footprints. Um, and you have a building that also has a rent roll that's constantly rolling. In an inflationary environment, we like that for a couple of reasons. One, you're able to be, you're constantly turning over your rent roll, which means that you're not tied to a single 10-year lease where you've got fixed expense bumps, right? So, but for us, again, it, when you have a building, let's say 100,000 square feet and you've got 10 tenants or 20 tenants each with five or 10,000 square feet, it's helpful for us because we can repurpose that space as well very quickly if we have to, right? If tenants are leaving, it's not as if we have a 500,000 square foot warehouse that's only specific to a certain type of tenant and the cost of reconfiguring that space to another tenant can become very expensive. These are buildings that tend to have a low cost as far as 
uh, replacement goes. We like the space a lot because there's tremendous demand for it today, in part because um, e-commerce really accelerated during COVID. And what companies realized was that last mile delivery was is critically important, right? Um, when you're shopping online, you want your groceries tonight, you want your shoes tomorrow, you want that jewelry tomorrow or the day after. And so as speed of delivery has become top of mind for consumers and the cost of having to reconfigure a supply chain relative to just taking additional space within a warehouse is that trade definitely skews towards just taking more warehouse space because the cost of trying to reconfigure somebody's supply chain can be very expensive. That's trend number one. Trend number two is that the resurgence of manufacturing coming back to the U.S. onshoring um, or nearshoring is such that you have companies that also want to have space here in the U.S. Um, in, in industrial buildings. And so those two trends together are ones that have really driven demand for industrial real estate in general. We like the shallow bay multi-tenant space in part because ownership is decentralized and we're able to build portfolios of these assets and um, larger institutions like this product, but they don't want to buy the ones and twos and threes because the amount of work that it takes to do that is tremendous to aggregate a portfolio, but they'll pay a premium to buy that portfolio from you if you can do the brain damage up front of, of, of aggregating the portfolio, which is what we're really good at doing. <laughs> yeah. Um, people who are good at living through and pursuing uh, brain damaging um, projects, it always comes out uh, in your favor at the end. You know, you talked a little bit about multifamily and I know over the last few years, there's been a, uh, a term called hotelification of multifamily. What is that in your mind and, and how can you guys um, kind of play a part in that? The demand for higher quality amenities, higher quality services especially during COVID manifested themselves at multifamily assets and the hotelification of multifamily, you have more flexibility around the term of the leases, higher quality amenities, higher quality offerings so that landlords can capture more of that tenant spend inside of that multifamily project. So make the gym extremely attractive that resident will pay more to live there versus having to spend $100 a month going to crunch. Offer up services, dog walking, dry cleaning services that you can just drop off at the leasing office. It's those kinds of concierge services are becoming progressively more and more in demand. Things like even after school daycare um, is something that we're seeing more and more of at these properties um, that are embedded at the asset itself um, and residents are willing to pay more rent in order to be able to have that kind of offering at the place they live. So we are seeing a lot more of that. You are seeing the emergence of shorter term leases, shorter term stays, fully furnished units, a lot of third party companies um, like Airbnb, Sonder and others are, are certainly doing more and more of this. It's becoming more and more commercially acceptable to have those companies at multifamily assets. How have you incorporated technology kind of into your day-to-day -day operations and into your portfolio and things like that? What are some cutting edge things that you're doing? 
I'll start with the property level. So at the property level, we incorporate a lot of sensor technology um, into everything we do to try to manage some of our expenses, water sensors, electricity sensors, um, to be able to try to manage our spend at, at the property. We, um, we use LED technology and we do a lot of green fixture replacement as well, both lights as well as plumbing fixtures. We try to minimize our footprint. At the software level, um, as far as asset management goes, we're, we're very data-driven. So we use a number of different software programs. By having data daily, it allows us to make real-time decisions about what's happening at an asset. And, and real estate is really an industry, especially in the business that we're in, where you have to have a combination of both humans as well as technology interacting together to make important decisions. For example, a lot of our peers will use rental software to make um, rental rate decisions based upon unit availability, unit staleness, forward leasing projections. And it's fine to get that data, but we think that humans should be making the final decisions about how to set rates versus just being wholly reliant upon AI to make those decisions. We do do some interesting stuff like utilize VR technology um, for student housing. So we'll go to student housing fairs, we'll throw headsets on people to have them walk through uh, a unit. Um, and then they will oftentimes sign a lease even though they haven't seen the actual unit because they're able to walk through it in VR. Technology is definitely getting more incorporated into everything that we do in the real estate world. How about on the debt side of uh, commercial real estate? Seems as though the banks, they seem to me to be pulling back or they're certainly more cautious about lending opportunities. How has Palladius been able to kind of fill the void as a uh, alternative lender? The, the first thing I would say is that the, the banking industry and the health of the financial markets is far stronger today than it was in 2008. I think the bank balance sheets are stronger um, but I, I think that there's also, there have been a number of alternative lenders in the debt real estate space, and they have been able to take advantage over the last four or five years in particular, traditional lenders being more conservative, um, which has led to opportunities uh, in that space. I think that one of the reasons why we launched the debt fund when we did was that we saw uh, we had an expectation that interest rates would rise and would rise fairly quickly. And we anticipated that many of our peers in the debt fund space might have portfolios where their uh, expected debt payoffs slowed down, um, in part because lender uh, borrowers were going to hold on to the debt they had because if they had to refinance, the interest rates would be far higher relative to where they originally borrowed at, and that those payoffs would lead to potential liquidity shortfalls that would allow us to step into opportunities with fresh capital um, and be able to lend at higher rates to higher quality collateral. Um, and we're starting to see that play out now. We've um, we launched the debt platform recently. We've started to deploy capital. It's still very early. So we can't say for certain whether it will go exactly as planned, but we have a high degree of confidence that we um, believe our investment thesis um, is correct. 
How about democratizing real estate? I know that uh, you, you've been able to kind of do this and give individuals the same opportunities as institutions. How are you doing it, Niffin, and, and why is it important? What, what's the opportunity that sits in front of uh, Palladius? I think that there's an opportunity to be able to introduce the offerings that we have to a much broader base of, in, of accredited investors and to be able to access those investors through third-party platforms is one that is very attractive, um, in part because a lot of those investors historically didn't have access to these real estate investment opportunities. And through platforms like Realty Mobile, who we partnered with historically, um, we're able to bring our offerings um, to those investors and provide them exposure to investments that we believe provide attractive risk-adjusted returns. Talk about tactically contrarian. Uh, you started the business like in 21, just kind of coming out of COVID where most people wouldn't have the guts uh, to do something like that. W what advice would you offer uh, people who are starting a business during periods of high uncertainty? How did you kind of get to that decision to do it? Or is that just kind of how you're wired and how you've built your career? I am very fortunate. We, we had a number of, of really good, intelligent capital partners, operating partners that encouraged me to start the business. And it's never an easy decision to start a new company, especially in times of high uncertainty like COVID. But I felt it was the right decision. I, I love what I do. And uh, I wanted to have the ability to shape a platform and bring uh, a, a world-class team together and to be able to scale that platform alongside some of those initial capital partners that we had. My advice to entrepreneurs um, generally would just be that the hardest part is making that initial leap. But if you have a conviction around um, what you do, then once you make that initial leap, it all starts to fall into place. Yeah, you can't steer a parked car. Not everything can be perfect before you kind of get moving, right? Just get it moving and you're going to figure it out if you have the right team around you. Yeah, nothing ever moves up and to the right in a straight line. Um, and things don't always play out like as you, as you would expect. There's always going to be pivots along the way. But um, I think that once you start the car, it starts to get a lot easier. If you looked out 10 years from now, what, what do you think Palladius looks like? And, and what would your definition of success be for the firm and, and your partners? Our goal is to become an investment manager that invests across all property types throughout the risk spectrum and up and down the capital structure. Um, and we hope to have uh, several billion dollars under management in several different investment vehicles um, doing just that. So that, that's our measure of success. If we're, if we're able to do that um, and build um, a team of really thoughtful, intelligent, and humble investment professionals, I think that's our, that's our goal. And have fun doing it, I'm sure. That's the most important thing. In less than two years, Palladius has had stunning success by being nimble, smart, and hyper-aware of their market. But they also found huge wins by running towards the real estate that others are running away from. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app 
and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to Niffin Chexall for joining me. He made a bold choice by establishing Palladius during uncertain times, and it's certainly paying off. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.